This podcast is sponsored by Police Bank. No matter where you are on your financial journey, banking with Police Bank means banking where you belong. Whether it's growing your savings, entering the workforce, buying your next home, or simply enjoying what life has to offer, Police Bank has a range of products to suit you at any stage of life. Welcome to Inside the New South Wales Police Force Real Cops, Real Stories. I'm your host, Adam Shand. This week, the continuation of our long-running investigation into the jawbone found on Umina Beach on the Central Coast in 2020. Some very promising news there and the prospect of a result very soon, which will have implications for many other unidentified human remains cases. And we hear from one of our team on the podcast, Senior Constable Ashley Bold. New South Wales Police has been working on a mysterious human remains case since June 2020, and an answer is drawing ever closer. This work goes much further than a single case. It will have an impact on the way hundreds of unsolved cases across the country are handled. It began with a jawbone, black in colour, found half buried in the sand on Umina Beach on the central coast. There was nothing to explain how it got there or who this deceased person was. Based on the teeth, forensic experts suggested this was the jaw of a 13 or 14-year-old boy. Detectives from Gosford, with the help of this podcast, have been eliminating possibilities while a DNA profile was established for the jawbone. For a time, it was thought the missing boy was a 14-year-old, Donald Maxwell Montgomery, who disappeared, presumed drowned in 1940. But a new testing regime has eliminated him. This process is called Forensic Investigative Genetic Technology, or FIG for short, and it's being used for the first time in New South Wales on this case. It's a game changer. Current DNA methods used by law enforcement look at 21 sites on an individual's DNA. FIG methods can test up to 1 million sites, enabling the identification of much wider family relationships, including third and fourth cousins. This technology, combined with traditional genealogy, is an exciting development that could bring resolution to many cases previously thought insoluble. My guest today is Dr Jen Raymond, Research Coordinator for the New South Wales Forensic Evidence and Technical Services Command. Dr Jennifer Raymond, welcome to Inside the New South Wales Police Force. Thank you. Glad to be here. We've been working on opposite sides of a particular story. It's great to meet you. The the black jawbone from your minor found in 2020. It's a long and involved saga, but tell us where we're at today with that case. So the Umina Beach Unknown Remains is one of the first cases that we're actually using a completely new technology for New South Wales Police. It's called Forensic Investigative Genetic Genealogy, but we call it FIG for short because it's, again, a bit of a mouthful. But I've been on a two-year journey to have a look at Forensic Investigative Genetic Genealogy. It's been used quite widely for the last five years in the US with some amazing results for cold cases and unknown remains. And I think they're up to about a 1,000 cases or people identified through that technique over there. However, we had to look and see whether it could actually be applied here in Australia because there are some differences in terms of the number of people who are on the databases that we can use and also the availability of public records that we use for the genealogy component. Let's understand what FIG is. I can put it broadly in terms of this case that for the last three years, 
The attempt has been to find a narrative that matches this human remain and then work back from a person to a living relative. Police then tried to match that living descendant to the DNA profile created from the jawbone. Fig then takes it in the other direction. So it uses a different type of DNA testing to our usual DNA database that we use for New South Wales police casework. It's looking at a much larger set of DNA markers. And what that enables us to do is to look at much further distant familial relationships. So we get our unknown DNA profile and we're able to upload it to one of two databases, either GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA, that allow law enforcement searches. Then we get a list of people who have uploaded to those databases who share some amount of DNA in common with our unknown. So we're working from living people and then we try and build back through traditional genealogy methods to try and find a common ancestor between our unknown and those matches. Once we find that, we know that the person must descend from that common ancestor. So we work backwards down into the the present day or the relevant time period that we're looking at for our unknown individual. Because, Dr Jen Raymond, you've been... um you didn't mean to do this, of course, but you crushed my hopes a couple of times. Because I know. we've been working on this for that period of time and we and we had a, a suggestion from a retired forensic pathologist, Dr Richard Wright, who said, hmm, that substance on the bone is peat. It's much older than you first thought because the initial estimate was about 10 years since the, the, the date of death. And Dr Richard Wright said you should be looking at Donald Maxwell Montgomery, 1940, with his father Sam on a boat in the Etalong Channel, Donald falls overboard, Sam dives in to save him, they both perish, Sam's body is found, Donald's is never found. One of those tragic stories, you read the news clippings of of them dragging the channel there and the lanterns at night and and just hoping against hope that they can find this body. And um, so in the end, Sam is buried in Rookwood. Uh, Donald doesn't have a, um, uh, a resting place, he's lost at sea. And when this name came up, we thought, bingo! Eureka! And it seemed to fit the narrative so closely that the position was pretty much this will be him. And it really highlights the progress we're making in this area because in years past, that would have been enough for the coroner to conclude on the balance of probabilities, this is Donald Maxwell Montgomery. First, you crushed that hope, right? (laughs) Oh, it crushed my hopes as well. I I was sure this was going to be a nice, uh, you know, a quick win for FIG, um, being the first case we're using here in New South Wales. With, uh, you know, a potential candidate, we could do the genealogy and quickly rule in or rule out this individual. And sadly, we had to rule, rule him out. As the genealogy showed from the matches that we had, there was no connections to that individual. And with a reference test from a living relative, unfortunately, we identified that there was no DNA in common between that person and our unknown individual. Therefore, unfortunately, it's not Donald. But we weren't finished. Another member of the police force suggested that uh, Roy Inman, who was eaten by a shark, sadly, tragically, in 1934, that he would possibly be our man, our, our boy. And when I went down to Horsefield Bay, the location looked perfect muddy backwater, plenty of mangroves, plenty of peat there, and there's peat all through these inlets on the eastern uh, coast of New South Wales. So suddenly Roy jumped into contention. And where are we today with the possibility of Roy being uh, the owner of this jawbone? Yeah, we haven't been able to rule Roy out just yet. He's still a candidate. We're working through the genealogy and there are some tentative connections to Roy's family. We're hopeful that with some further digging, we might be able to 
confirm those connections and or potentially uh, get a reference test from a living individual to be able to conclusively state whether it is Roy. So, yes, we are still hopeful with that second candidate. This is big news. The early signs were not good for Roy, but Jen's hard work has yielded some family names in common with the Inman clan across different family trees. Still a long way to go, but it's the best lead yet in this three-year investigation. The team has located a living relative to Roy Inman in Sydney, a descendant of Roy's sister Joyce. He's a young man and and, uh, this is the great tragic story in their family. And he always thought that his middle name Roy related to a family name going right back. But in fact, it is to memorialise Roy who was so tragically taken in that shark attack and the circumstances there were vividly reported in the newspapers that he was there with his sister Joyce and they were just paddling around the around the uh, the shallows there by the jetty and their mother had been warned about a bull shark in the area in the days prior and she'd sort of taken it light as people did back then. Not, not as many people got taken by sharks as they do now, seemingly. Anyway, Jaws hadn't been released yet either. I'm Jaws sure. <laughs> hadn't been released. That's absolutely right. And so at lunchtime she decides, oh, I better get the kids out of the water. And she calls down to Roy, who's on the edge of the, the jetty. Joyce is in the water. Come up out for lunch. And Roy says to his mother, one more fancy dive into the water. And at that moment the shark comes along and brushes Joyce in the water, grazing her leg. Poor Roy dives into the water and it's consumed by the shark. And the last sight we have him is, is the shark's got him around his middle. He appears out of the water, disappears forever, which is important for our narrative because the jawbone itself has no telltale marks of predation on it. So that keeps Roy in the game as well. But let's not get ahead of ourselves because there's many slips betwixt cup and lips in this business, as we've already seen. So what is the work that's going on right now? So we're still working through the tree building, coming down from a common ancestor into uh, the time period that we're looking at for this person. It is quite painstaking work and that's why what makes FIG so interesting. It combines the most high-tech, latest available DNA technology with traditional old books and uh, records that is genealogy. So we're now past the DNA phase and we're working in the, the records and the dusty old books and the, and the records that we're building down to see if we can find this connection. Um, and we're lucky that these days so many records are available online and we have so many tools that we can use that are available to us to try and make those connections. It makes it much easier than it was uh, you know, previously. And it it's really what you say about these uh, living relatives and it was the biggest event that happened in their family. It's, it's really important to remember that every set of remains that we aren't able to identify, that the impact that that has had on some family and the ripple effects down, you know, through generations that it can have. And to be able to restore the identity of that person through these new techniques is so important to resolve those feelings for that family and, and, you know, bring them some answers to the mystery that that has existed in their family for so long. So we're really pleased within New South Wales to be able to start using this technology to hopefully bring resolution to more of these cases. Sure, because every culture in the world that I've ever dealt with has something about having remains to bury, to lay the soul to rest, to resolve the family's tragedy. And when there's not, there's just a... uh, You know, like a... It's a sore that can't heal, really, isn't it? It So yeah. And, the, and talk, talking to the 
family about this and Roy's place within that and just the sadness that that's kind of come down and the stories that get told about that and and so I, again I don't want to get anyone's hopes up this is but you know the, the, the possibility that it is related is such an exciting prospect but we, we are getting ahead of ourselves how close have you got Basically, for some information from the US, these cases can, the average, I think, the time to solve one of these cases is 12 months that they've given. So we've been going at this for, I think, only about three months now. So we're not doing too badly with the, the work that we've, we're doing, and I think we are really close. I don't think it'll be too long before we have an answer for this one. Oh, I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to that. Because I see your office here, you've got the whiteboard, it's covered in names, it's got the, the various, you, you really are working at this um, frenetically. Absolutely. Yeah. It's one of those things. It gets into your skin doing this, this work. You go down rabbit holes and before you know it, it's 2am and you're still, uh, you forget where you are in the family tree and why you're looking at that individual. But it's such a, an, a, you know, an addictive field to be in just because the reward is so huge for, you know, family members or for victims of crime to be able to bring resolution to that. It's, it's just incredible, especially these cases of just hit brick walls um, with the currently available techniques that we had prior to this. And now to be able to have another another lead, another step that we can do so that no case is ever considered, you know, completely unsolved or closed, we can we can revisit and look at all these these cases and hopefully bring resolution to them. Yeah, it's funny because having just met you today and I've been talking to the officers in charge of this, there have been two already, and we all just sort of joked about it. Please, Jawbone, give us a sign. Give us something that can help this be resolved. But this is much bigger than just this Jawbone, isn't it? We are on the verge of an era where there will be no secrets or very few with these unidentified human remains. How significant is the work you're doing right now to other families who are in a similar position? This is, you know, the first step and hopefully of hundreds of cases that we'll be able to solve with this technique. Um, we have taken the time to fully, you know, validate it, make sure it's uh, implemented safely and ethically. So there was a lot of background work of legal reviews and privacy assessments to make sure that we're not impacting anyone unnecessarily. But yeah, the power of the technique is just so amazing. You know, the benefits that we can we can have and, yeah, potentially, you know, bring identities to all of the unknown remains that we have around Australia, which is huge. It's incredible. Because this has been used in the US since 2018. Just give us a bit of a potted history of how it's come about and, and what it's doing in other jurisdictions. Yeah, absolutely. The, the first case that really hit the media that was resolved with FIG was the Buckskin Girl case, it was called. Um, she was an unidentified remains and she was given that name from the buckskin coat that she was wearing. Um, she, you know, lay unidentified for I think it was about 30 years and until um, this technique was used and, and I think they found it was fairly close relative. I think it was, you know, quite a first cousin once removed. And so that hit the news and there was a bit of um, publicity about it, but mainly in the forensic fields. The buckskin girl was identified as Marcia Lenore Sossaman, a 21-year-old Arkansas woman who was murdered in April 1981. But where it really blew up is the Golden State Killer case, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. Um, the FBI, in collaboration with local law enforcement agencies in the US in California, were able to identify, and a former policeman actually, who was responsible for, I think it was about 13 murders and numerous sexual assaults and break-in enters that just terrorised the whole state of California, really, in the 70s and 80s. Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. was a former police officer who committed at least 13 murders, 51 rapes and 120 burglaries across California between 1974 and 1986. 
just to see a case like that that would never have been solved any other way is, you know, so amazing. And there were people alive who are still, you know, scarred from that experience. Like women didn't want to, you know, go outside. They were, you know, the people started keeping in locked doors for the, from this offender. Uh, and finally to bring resolution to that is incredible. And since then it's just exploded and you, know, you see press releases every day of a new case that's been resolved through this. Uh, Canada has recently started using it also, so they've got a few cases under their belt now and there's a number of countries in Europe that are also looking at it. Sweden is, is one that's just recently had some legal reviews about using it and France as well. So it is truly an international technique, particularly within Australia with, you know, we're all migrants here apart from our First Nations people. So you only go one or two generations back and you're hitting other countries. So you have to start looking for records in those countries. So it is truly a cross-border, you know, cross-jurisdiction um, technique that really is international and with more people, countries coming on board, the more, uh, you know, potential we have to solve it as more records become available. Um, it really is exciting. You're going to spoil all those mysteries for, for journalists like me, but I don't mind. If this one gets solved, it's fantastic. But New South Wales is taking a lead on this. I mean, you, you work in uh, conjunction with Victoria and other states, but New South Wales has taken the lead on this. Just how's that taken place? Yeah, so... Again, as I mentioned before, we really wanted to make sure we implemented this safely, effectively and ethically and bring the public along, along uh, you know, the ride with us to make sure that the public have trust in what we're doing. So it started back, uh, you know, probably I think two or three years ago, we started looking at this. The first thing we had to do was figure out who could do the DNA testing because our you know, local labs that do normal DNA testing aren't accredited for this. So it's investigating who could do that. At the moment, there's mostly labs in the US that really have the expertise. So we do send samples over there. And there are labs within Australia who are coming on board as well. The next step is um, the privacy impact assessment. So we re- did a you know a very thorough review of the whole process from end to end and make sure that you know we are handling the information safely. Um, we're not breaching anyone's trust. For this technique to work, we rely on members of the public to upload their DNA to these databases, and we want to make sure people are comfortable doing that to enable us to get these amazing results and bring resolution to these families. So if we did anything to you know hurt that public's trust and harm public opinion on this technique, people won't upload. So we have to make sure that we do this in the right way that people want to contribute, they want to help, they want to help solve crime and bring resolution to the families of missing individuals. The strict guidelines that we've implemented and the databases themselves have strict terms and conditions of when law enforcement can actually use them and there are specific crime types if you are looking at that, so homicides and serious sexual assaults are the main ones there. Um, And then unidentified remains is a really key one as well. And we are, you know, actively ensuring that we're adhering to all those terms and conditions and using it appropriately. It's not a technique that you can just use for every single break-in and offence and, and the public can rest assured that's not going to happen anytime soon. It really is reserved for the most serious of crime types and to bring resolution to unidentified remains cases. We saw the Beast of Bondi case, the serial rapist over a long period of time, and they could not match him to anybody. But that case now, using FIG, I would suggest would have been solved earlier. That case was a good example of applying genealogical style techniques to our current DNA techniques that are available to law enforcement. So routine familial testing, which is much narrower than what FIG can do. So it's down to sort of parent-child or sibling relationships. Through DNA, a male was linked to at least 31 sexual assaults between 1985 and 2002 in Sydney's east. His victims were aged from 13 to 55. He died before police could question him. 
However, for other cases where there's just no match on the current databases, this is where FIG really can be applied. You're a PhD in trace DNA, correct? Yes. You chose well in your career. Talk about a growth area. Did you imagine that you'd be stepping into this territory? Was it obvious to you those years ago? Well, no, even to forensic scientists in the field, this genetic genealogy just came out of the water. Usually with science, it's a very slow and progressive evolution of a technique. As scientists, we love to validate things and love to dot our I's and cross our T's and make sure everything's above board. But this really came out of left field and then the forensic area was really scrambling to keep up with it. Um, You know, it's getting these great results. We're trying to apply routine quality frameworks that we have here in forensic science that we have to adhere to, to this explosion of a technique. But it is so exciting to see just when we we thought DNA had peaked, it had done everything, we were getting as much resolution as we ever were going to get. This comes along and just opens a whole new, it's a whole new ball game for us in forensics. It's really exciting. You're more like a detective these days, aren't you? It's a fantastic combination of fields, this infig, because you've got, yeah, as I said, the most high-tech science with historical genealogy and all of that skill, plus the investigators and open source intelligence for the living individuals. So it combines everything. And that's why um, we are looking at a, a multi-skilled team, so a diverse team of different you know, scientists plus uh, intel analysts plus investigators, because you really need all those skills for this technique to really work well to apply the science to the intel and then their leads and then the investigation through to conclusion of the case. So, yeah, it, it needs a whole lot of different skills that is is just you know really exciting to learn so how can people help i mean we've talked about people giving their their dna and not just this case because we have literally hundreds of missing people possibly thousands over over decades and there is an answer available if people are prepared to get involved take a simple swab buccal swab and give their dna that's right. So first, the first thing I would like to say is if people have a close missing relative in their family, the first thing they should do is contact their local police station and have your DNA submitted through the routine processes for missing persons because that is, A, the quickest way to, to get that person identified. Failing that, if people are, you know don't have a close missing relative but are just interested in helping, what you could consider, um, and this is completely up to the individual, but if you have already taken, it, say, an ancestry test, all you have to do to help law enforcement is download your DNA file and upload it to GEDmatch, and that's completely free of charge. There's easy instructions on the GEDmatch website if anyone's interested in that, and uh, obviously all the terms and conditions um, and everything that you might need to know if you wanted to participate in that are available there. And please look out in the show notes. We'll put links to GEDmatch and family Tree D- DNA. DNA. My gut feel is no good. I had a, such a strong feeling about, about Donald and it wasn't correct. We're working on here. Now, I've asked a lot of questions in this couple of years in this case. Most of them have been how long? I'm going to ask you one more, how long before we get to a, a state of knowledge? Uh, I, I'm not expecting a day, date now, but based on what you're, you're seeing now. I think we could say a couple of months just to be sure, but I think we'll have an answer, you know, come springtime, I think we'll have, hopefully have a resolution to the minor beach jawbone case. Wow, I never thought I'd hear that sentence. <laughs> I don't want to get anyone's hopes up. I've uh, put a lot of pressure on myself now, but um, we are working very hard to bring resolution to this case. I've got a very good feeling. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Jennifer Raymond. Thank you so much for having me. That's Dr. Jen Raymond from the New South Wales Police Forensic Evidence and Technical Services Command. We'll bring you more on that investigation as it comes to hand. But in the meantime, check out the show notes for how you can get involved in solving long-standing mysteries. 
After a message from our sponsors, I'll talk to Senior Constable Ash Bold. Police Bank's U30 Supercharge account is available for members aged between 18 to 29 and is one of the most accessible high interest rate saving accounts on the market. This is more than a savings account as there are no ongoing fees so you can plan your future. Whether that's a holiday with friends, a deposit on your first home or even a new car, get ahead with Police Bank's U30 Supercharge account. This podcast is also proudly brought to you by Charles Sturt University, providing education for the New South Wales police force and law enforcement worldwide for over 30 years. Do you want to become a cop or further your policing career? We can help. Visit csu.edu.au forward slash policing to learn more. Let's talk to a key member of the Inside the New South Wales Police Force podcast team, Senior Constable Ashley Bold. Ash has been putting together a series of stories for the podcast you'll be hearing throughout this season. Some extraordinary stories of police officers who have been through tragedy, found resilience, come back to the job and continue to contribute to the force and to society in general. He's got his own career, of course. I mean, he'll talk about that today. Uh, Ash, thanks for your help, mate, on the podcast so far. It's been terrific. Tell me, you must have gone into the academy and they've gone, recruit, bowl? <laughs> Surely not. How is that? Amongst the many other names I got called. But uh, no, that was it. So now it was always a lifelong ambition for me to join the police. And uh, I achieved that in 1994. And, um, you know, I started off uh, obviously in general duties like everyone else. I was sort of working around the Bankstown district, did GDs for or the Bankstown area for about two years and I transferred into City Central. I was out there for uh, about six years. After that, I uh, went into traffic services. I was in the uh, crash investigation unit for a short time. Following that, I uh, went to the police radio communication branch, uh, which is, you know, broadcasting jobs to other car crews and also doing triple O calls, and that was uh, an experience in itself. After the police radio room, I went to the police transport command on the trains, and uh, that was a great experience as well. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Worked with an absolute great bunch of uh, other cops. Well, I was told something about your service in that role because you weren't just content to chase the villains on the platform. I mean, you were halfway up the street and beyond. Yeah, correct. When I was at the transport command, I had a very good reputation of catching people in foot pursuits. But the problem was I actually caught them about a month after the event. Uh, <laughs> the advent of cameras has certainly changed that. When I first joined the job, I mean, CCTV was virtually non-existent. I remember the very first job I did uh, where I had CCTV was in the George Street cinema strip at a a fast food restaurant and uh, it was a stealing and the the manager was sort of very excited, said, oh, we've just had this CCTV system put in. Uh, It's, uh, you know, it's cost us 10,000 bucks and we've got it on camera. I thought, great, I'm finally doing a job with my own CCTV footage. The footage was this black and white grainy stuff that, fair dinkum, it could have been my own mother and I still wouldn't have picked her. The, the, the footage was terrible. So that was my first experience with CCTV. But obviously over the years, the, the qualities of the cameras have just got far more superior. And uh, I remember on this one occasion when I was on the trains, at the platforms there at Central, we uh, were running a drug dog operation. A, a dog had given a detection uh, to a, a commuter. And uh, we spoke to this bloke and we said, mate, you know, this is the story. And he admitted to recent drug use. So we said, look, we're just going to have a quick chat to you. He goes, yeah, I'm happy to talk to you. So I said, okay, beautiful. He lulled me into a false sense of security. And the next minute he's turned around and he's done the bolt on us. And he's running up to the, the train barriers. 
and uh, got to the barriers there and I thought, oh, good, we've got this bloke here. And the next one, he leapt over this thing like a gazelle. And I thought, bugger, this is not looking good for us. Anyway, he made good his escape, but we had it on the body-worn camera, a couple of the CCTV cameras. I was able to actually track this bloke as to where he got off the train to where he got on the train, which was somewhere out the back of Penrith. And I contacted Penrith Police. Within about 10 minutes, the station constable got back to me and he said, mate, you're not going to believe this. And I said, what is it? And he said, I used to go to school with that bloke. His name's, you know, Joe Blow. And uh, within an hour, we identified this bloke. So that was all through the cameras. Now, 20 years earlier, I mean, that we would never have seen that guy again. So that just goes to show you how good the uh, the cameras are and, you know, the fact that we can download it. I mean, this was just, you know, certainly when I joined the police, it was just certainly all science fiction. Yeah, so you, you talk about cameras. I want to make one thing clear. Your mother has never been a person <laughs> of interest in her life, well, all right? If, if, if she was, uh, she would have gotten away with the quality of the cameras back in her younger days. So, uh, yeah, so she's probably home and hose. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, there's a serious side to this because, uh, as I say, you've compiled a bunch of stories for us which go into the, the random nature of the job and the potential tragedy and living after that tragedy. And of course, death, the death of Peter Forsyth in 1998 Brian Neville, who was a survivor of that event, has told the story for an earlier episode. Thank you so much for that. He mentioned one key phrase that I'm going to steal. He said, resilience chose me. Yeah, and I think that just sums up the calibre of uh, Brian. I actually went through the academy uh, with Peter. I I didn't know Peter terribly well, but I I certainly knew of. He was sort of one of those blokes that stood out. And uh, I'd only actually been talking to him only a a couple of weeks. I'd sort of bumped into him at a job uh, only a couple of weeks before Unfortunately, he was tragically killed. And uh, and obviously, I took a very keen interest having known Peter Forsyth. And where the incident occurred at the time, I was at City Central. So I was in my own command. I mean, I wasn't working the night that it happened, but obviously a lot of the police that went to the job, I sort of knew and we sort of, you know, talked about it. And it was after a, a couple of years, I sort of really wanted to tell Peter's story because it was absolutely tragic what happened. And uh, I sort of reached out to... Brian and, you know, his uh, the offsider at the time there, Jason Semple, and sort of approached them about writing an article in one of our police magazines called the Australian Police Journal, which, you know, they, again, they found very difficult to do, but, you know, their absolute credit, they said it was a story that needed to be told. And I, I just think it showed the danger of policing, like how, you know, such a routine, you know, arrest, which, as I said in the article there, if there is such a thing, how it can go from routine to absolutely tragic, and it really does serve as an example to uh, to all police. What got me about Brian's story, and I don't want to give too much away because people should go back to that episode and listen to it, is that he came back to the job. And there are so many cases where people do come back to the job because they feel a responsibility. And in Brian's case, he wanted he wanted to serve for Peter Forsyth in yeah, a sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I said that just sums up the calibre of the bloke. And um, I mean, no one could have criticised him if he if he had chosen to you know to leave the job. And I really respect uh, you know, I really take my hat off to Brian for doing that. Yeah, indeed. So I mean, you need to be brave to do this job. There's no doubt about that. But the way you looked after these days is much better than back in 1998. Oh, look, 100%. Yeah, there's certainly a lot more, um, you know, I think there's a lot more understanding about things such as PTSD and the stress that it can cause. And, 
you know, and, um, yeah, and, you know, certainly the organisation is, you know, very supportive. If they want to see people back in the job, you know, they don't want to lose people. It's always said, you know, of any organisation, people are the most valuable resource. And, um, you know, we want to keep our people in the organisation, you know, to serve on and, and again, to, you know, f- learn from their experiences. You've been in the job 28 years now. Uh, I wouldn't have thought a man named Constable Bold would ever have any problems, but I'm sure you've had your dark moments. What uh, What have been the challenges for you in terms of, I guess, not just... PTSD, but finding your way to the job. And unfortunately, your destiny is to work with me on this podcast. <laughs> well, I, I've got to correct you on one thing. It's actually senior constable. I, I, I was promoted a couple of years ago. Terribly sorry. <laughs> That's all right. So I probably hit the sheer ceiling of my career, but no, I'm quite happy to be a senior constable. But uh, I, I think with me, I've sort of been lucky in respect that um, – I'm the sort of person, water goes off a duck's back with me. It's um, not too many things really sort of phase me. I mean, I, I have obviously seen one or two things in the job that have been sort of very distressing. Um, I'll stop you there. I'll stop you there. There's a thought in your mind right now. What is it? Yeah, there was actually a, uh, it was a suicide that I attended uh, some years back uh, at a train station and um, just the, the absolute tragedy of, you know, what this young girl had done at such a young age you know, I did really went home to my own kids and I just said, look, if, you know, things are getting that bad, you make sure you come and see mum and dad and, you know, whatever it is, nothing will ever be that bad. And I'll probably say that's one job that really does uh, sort of stand out for me and, you know, dealing with the, the family and the parents because it was one of these things that had sort of come out of absolute left field with the family. And I, I think the sad part is we were never able to ascertain what prompted this young girl to do this. There was obviously a lot of speculation, but uh, we never sort of found anything solid. And uh, that's probably one job that does play my mind over the years, actually. Well, there's a strong streak of humanity in you, Senior Constable Ashley Bold, because the stories you're setting up for us typify the human aspect of policing. And I think that's something it's it's overdue, that police are people from the community in uniform doing the job that needs to be done. And, you know, uh, there are times when it's difficult. But I think the stories we're going to tell with you typify the people aspect. This is a calling. It's a duty. It's a service to the community, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I've got to say, going back to my own policing career when I first started, a bit of a funny story. I mean, what prompted me to join the cops was when I was five years old in kindergarten, the police come out to the school to talk to us. And I thought, then, I thought, that's the job for me. And that was something that absolutely stuck with me right up until, or until this very day, and I've never regretted on joining the job. Um, obviously, as I, you know, I left school when I was, uh, I was 16, I sort of left in year 10, so I didn't do my HSC, so I had to go back and do my HSC, but the reason I did my HSC was to always join the police, and it's something that I've never, never, you know, never uh, regretted, and it's um, something I try to convince my own kids into doing, actually, but obviously they've got their own decisions that they want to make. But, um, yeah, no, I've absolutely loved the cops and, um, yeah, best decision I ever made, actually. All right, so how many are going to follow you, do you think? Hopefully all three. I've threatened them with the inheritance, actually. So uh, I said, (laughs) if you don't join, you don't get the inheritance. So, uh, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, no, my oldest is sort of uh, 16 at the moment. So uh, she's sort of finding a way in life. She's still at school. So um, hopefully she might hear this podcast and uh, think, yep, I'll follow Dad to the cops. (laughs) Yeah, why not? I mean, it's a great job, to be honest. Okay, we talked about the bad days. What's been the best day on the job, apart from doing this interview for the podcast, mate? <laughs> well, I've got to say, one story that does really stand out, and I love telling this story, was the time I saved the Queen of England. Uh, back in uh, early 2000, I think it was about February, March uh, 2000, I was on a security detail uh, down at Darling Harbour. The Queen was coming to visit. 
uh, down at Darling Harbour there, and I was with two colleagues of mine, Constable uh, Adam uh, Walton, who's now a sergeant at Newcastle, and uh, Constable Ryan Hunter, who's now a sergeant at City Central. So the three of us were sort of on this security detail, and just before the Queen got there, this bloke sort of jumped the barrier, and we've grabbed him, all three of us at the same time. We sort of said, mate, what are you up to? And he said, oh, I'm here to protect the Queen. And we said, uh, mate, you better come with us. Anyway, we pulled him aside because he was very dishevelled. And uh, sure enough, we found a knife uh, strapped to his leg and in his uh, backpack, he actually had a makeshift bomb. That made worldwide news, actually, and I think uh, that was quite a thrill, actually, saving the Queen of England. And, you know, whenever I tell that story, people are like, what? I said, true story. We haven't got our knighthood yet, but uh, hopefully it might come. I was just going to say you were robbed. <laughs> no Australia Day honours, nothing. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Maybe maybe it will be. It's been 20, what, 22, 23 years, so you never know. It might be coming soon. So tell me, you're still a young man, despite the grey hair and a few lines and so forth. <laughs> I'm wondering how long you want to stay in the job for. Mate, um, well... Oh, as long as I can. I think when I was young, I'd always planned to sort of leave as soon as I turned 60 or as soon as I'm eligible, but I'm now in my early 50s. If I'm thoroughly enjoying it, I, you know, especially at the police media where I'm attached to, and uh, I enjoy coming to work and, um, you know, I'm quite happy to stay on as long as I can, actually. Fantastic. That's Senior Constable Ashley Bold. He's bringing a range of stories to this podcast that I'm really proud to present, these human stories of police. So look out for those. Thanks for your time, mate. Mate, it's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Next week on Inside the New South Wales Police Force, we talk to a homicide veteran about how police took down the Brothers for Life gang during a spree of violence. This has been a production of Real Crime Australia. Thanks for listening. Inside the New South Wales Police Force is a Real Crime Australia production in association with the New South Wales Police Force. The host producer is Adam Shand. Editing and imaging by Matt Dwyer. For New South Wales Police, Christian Schweitzer, Sergeant Emma Key, Senior Constable Ashley Bold and Anthony Bray and the New South Wales Police Force Band. To find out more about any of our products discussed on today's episode, search Police Bank. Alternatively, speak to one of the Police Bank team on 131 728. This podcast is also proudly brought to you by Charles Sturt University, providing education for the New South Wales Police Force and law enforcement worldwide for over 30 years. Do you want to become a cop or further your policing career? We can help. Visit csu.edu.au forward slash policing to learn more.